Father, thank you for giving us this time together. Lord, we've got this next hour. Lord, uh, we may be tired. It's been a long week, but there is great truth for us to absorb here in your word. And I pray that you would help us to gaze into the text by the power of the Spirit and that we would be transformed by the Spirit from one degree of glory to the next, Lord, so that we can glorify you together and help others to be equipped for the work of ministry too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, so you may be here and thinking, you know, I, I'm really liking what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm being educated. I'm being challenged spiritually. I, I think that I might want to take the next step and, and go further with this biblical counseling thing and, and make this more of a formal ministry at my church or in my life. And if that is the case, then this is for you. This lecture is for you, and these qualifications are something for you to pursue. Now, you may be here, and you're thinking, well, I don't think I really want to do this formally. I think this is good education. I know that I need to know these things if I'm going to give advice to people within my church and those in my, my community, but I don't really want to pursue this formally. I said, well, this is also for you, because you're not going to find anything in this lecture that, that you shouldn't pursue. These are things that any Christian should be pursuing in order to be a discipler, right? We're all called to the, the task of discipleship. And so I hope that you find that even though this is called qualifications of a biblical counselor, that you can learn from these things. And by the way, um, you, you don't have to achieve perfection in these to be used as a biblical counselor. Uh, these are areas in which we are growing and we should be praying for the Lord to give us growth in these areas. So let's get started. Okay. Is there even a need for biblical counselors. And you're like, okay, well, what are we doing here then? Why, why do you even ask that basic question? Well, uh, I want to answer that question from Scripture. And so I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. I want to ask that question of the text. What do the Scriptures say about that question? Is there even a need for biblical counselors? Look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, I think answering this question from Galatians 6.1, is there even a need for biblical counselors? Paul would say yes. And why do I say that? Because... Those who are caught in any transgression, for for those, restoration is needed. Or you could say, a restorer. Restoration requires a restorer, or you could say, a counselor. I think that's what we're looking at here in Galatians 6.1, is a counselor to walk alongside this person who is caught in transgression and help him or her to repent and get back on the straight and narrow, so to speak, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and glorifying the Lord. So, with that in mind, if we're going to answer the question positively, then we need to ask, who should counsel? And that's where we're going to spend all of our time. All right, we've got 12 big points. Who should counsel? One who is Spiritual, the text says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him 
you who are spiritual. What does this mean? Well, we might think that the word spiritual means like non-religious. Like some people say, well, I'm not religious. Um, I'm just spiritual. Like I, I, I'm mystical in the things that I believe. I, I'm not into you know formalized religion, institutions of of uh, Christianity or other uh, religions. That's not my thing. Well, spiritual doesn't mean just non-religious. In this sense, spiritual means living and walking according to the Holy Spirit. The footnote from ESV Study Bible. I think it's helpful. Spiritual means living and walking according to the Holy Spirit. So. These Christians are not perfect, right? They're they're not perfect, but they are bearing the fruit of the Spirit instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then you get further into that context in verses 22 and 23, and you see that walking in the Spirit means you bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. And so this is the kind of person, someone who is walking by the Spirit. Now this is important to understand spiritual in this way, um, because we tend to want to think that we need a counselor to counsel us who's walked through the same problems that we're experiencing. You think, okay, if I'm going to go look for a counselor, then that counselor needs to have struggled in the ways that I'm struggling. They need to have um, walked through the same trials, be hindered in the same ways, and then they got out of it so they know how to get out of that particular sin struggle or that particular trial. That's not the case. We need someone who is spiritual, somebody who is walking according to the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You don't need somebody to exactly know what you're going through because they've been there, done that. So these are Christians who are spiritually mature. They're more spiritually mature, and therefore they're better equipped to help those who are caught up in sin. And so you don't need somebody who's in the muck with you. That, yes, might be able to sympathize with you in every way. And maybe there's something comforting about that because you're like, okay, uh, and there are other Christians that are struggling like me, but, but in order to receive counsel, you need to have someone who is standing on the solid ground. Not someone who's in the quicksand with you, right? That person can't help you. If they're in the quicksand with you, then you're going to be looking at each other and you're going to be sinking as your eyes go beneath the quicksand. You need somebody who's standing on the solid ground, who's got that big tree branch and giving it to you so you can pull them out. That's the person who is spiritual, not the person that's in the same muck with you. Also, let me, let me back up a little bit. By the way, if they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit and they're walking in the Spirit, that presupposes something, doesn't it? That presupposes that they're indwelt by the Spirit. These are Christians. They have to be Christians, right? Those who actually know the Lord, know His Word, have the Spirit. And by the way, this is important because uh, if you get into the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 26, and and, uh, John chapter 15 as well, if you're looking at the Christian standard Bible, which is a great translation, or if you're looking at the King James Version, the Spirit is referred to as counselor or comforter. 
The Holy Spirit is referred to as counselor or comforter. You would expect then that if you're really going to give counsel to somebody, then you need to have the counselor within you. God, the counselor. It's necessary if you're truly going to help those who are caught in any transgression get out and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So someone who is indwelt by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but also someone who is willing to invest. Someone who is willing to invest in the counselee and the counseling process. Now if we look back at Galatians chapter 6, we read again, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now the word restore means to mend or to repair, being used to describe the setting of a broken bone. So imagine with me for a moment that you go to the doctor. You've got this huge swollen leg And the doctor looks at your leg, does an x-ray. You clearly have a broken leg, but he says, well, uh, that'll be, you know, $400 and sends you back out in the, the parking lot to hobble to your car. That would be unthinkable for them to do that, to not send you to the emergency room, not send you to get your bone actually mended or broken. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that they would do that. And we should feel the same way when it comes to our need to restore those who are caught in sin. Maybe it feels good to some people. And perhaps maybe this is something you struggle with personally. Maybe it feels good to simply confront people's sin. To expose the problem. Much like that doctor in the illustration I gave who just exposes the problem but does nothing to help the problem. Some people are like that. They, they say, I, I want to come. I'm the confronter, right? That's my spiritual gift. I'm the one who, who exposes the problem. I, I like to show people their faults and then walk away, and I get to feel better about myself because I'm, I'm clearly not as bad as that person is. Maybe there's hints of that in your own heart, or, or, or maybe that's a temptation you've experienced, but that's not counseling. Simply confront and then walk away without helping the person to actually restore To be restored? Rebuke or confrontation is only part of the biblical counseling process. And even then, it's done for the glory of God. Even then, it's done for the good of the brother or sister, not so that you can feel better about yourself spiritually. And so, restore. And that that speaks to investing in the counselee and the counseling process. This is not just walking up, exposing the problem, and then walking away. There's investment in this. The ministry of counseling, I'm sorry, I apologize, there we go, mend or repair, mend or repair, but the ministry of counseling is the hard work, it's the hard work of coming alongside someone else, and it's, it's actually shouldering the weight of their sin problem with them. Shouldering the weight of another Christian's problems, trials, struggles, and doing so with endurance. Look back with me at our text, Galatians chapter 6. If we get down into verse 2, we find this. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Can you, can you see investment in that? In the counseling process? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I remember um, um, being told about a race 
that took place in the 1992 Olympics. There was a, a runner, Derek Redmond. I don't know if you remember this from the 92 Olympics. Uh, he sustained an injury in the middle of his race. And um, he could not run. He was limping down the, the actual uh, raceway. When his dad comes out of the stands. And he gets out onto the track. And he comes alongside him, and he's helping him to finish the race. It's like one of those moments in sports history where you kind of get choked up a little bit when you watch it. It's one of those moments. But he he illustrated for us what it looks like for us to actually restore such a one who is caught up in any transgression. Coming alongside and shouldering the weight, bearing that person's burden with them. Derek Redmond's father shows us that. And the Apostle Paul actually shows us the kind of heart that we should have that leads to that kind of investment. If we're still in Galatians, we can look at chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 4, and we're going to go, we're going to start in verse 18 and go into verse 19 of Galatians 4. Look with me there. Paul writes, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What a heart. I am in agony. I'm in an agony like a mother that's giving birth. Because I want to see Christ formed in you. That's the investment level that he is giving to their sanctification. We need to pray that that would be the kind of heart that we have for those who are caught in transgressions, that we would think like Paul. We would be in agony until we see people um, acting more like Christ, desiring more like Christ, speaking more like Christ. Pray that the Lord would give you such a heart. And by the way, that is Christ-like, isn't it? To bear the burdens of someone who is caught in sin This is Christ-like because Jesus is the great burden bearer, isn't he? Think of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so when we act like that, when we come along and shoulder the weight and help them to get out of that struggle, then we're being like Jesus. Of of course, not in the same way because we, we, we can't duplicate the atonement. We could never do that. But we can act like him. We can have ministry that is shaped like his ministry in that way. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So, one who is willing to invest in the counseling and the counseling process, but also one who knows, trusts, and loves the Word of God. At a biblical counseling conference, you would expect that this is obvious. But we need to make sure that it is re-emphasized time and time again because this is our authority. It's what we stand on. It's what we used to preach and to teach and to counsel with. It is our uh, only book for that. So think with me about the kind of heart that we ought to have to bring to a biblical counseling scenario. We see the kind of heart in Psalm 119. Look with me there at Psalm 119, verse 97. We're going to look at the stanza together. Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. It's the kind of heart that we need to pray that God would give us more and more of if we're going to help people who are caught up in sin. Oh, how I love your law. 
So this is not just a cerebral thing. Like, I, I know the Word of God. I know it inside and out. I have this, uh, this, this knowledge that puffs me up when I think about the Word of God. I can regurgitate it to you. No, I love your law, the psalmist says. How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Right? It's not something I turn to every now and then. I'm meditating out throughout the day. He says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. The reason why he's wiser than his enemies is because he's got the word of God ever with him. It continues to be with him in his meditation, his thoughts. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. I'm actually a person who has more understanding because I continue to take the word of God and... um, In my mind, I'm turning it over and over again and applying it to my own heart. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. He's not just meditating on it. He's not just understanding it. He's actually obeying it. And that means he has more understanding than the aged. He goes on to say, I hold back my feet from every evil way. Why? In order to keep your word, in order to obey. I do not not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So it's from the inside out that this psalmist is rightly obsessed with God's word because he's obsessed with the God of the word. So for... Counselors, Scripture is the final authority and sufficient for life and godliness. Sorry, I keep giving you these uh, ahead of time. I apologize. But Scripture is the final authority for the counselor and sufficient for life and godliness. Now, we as counselors need to be those who actually believe in the sufficiency of God's Word. What does that mean? It means God's Word is enough. It's enough for us to be able to impart wisdom that people need in order to respond to their trials and their sins in a way that pleases God. Listen to this. This is from John Frame. John Frame is a, is a well-known theologian, and he talks here about the sufficiency of God's Word. He says, all, uh, Scripture has all the divine words necessary for the theologian and for the plumber. What's he mean by that? You think... Okay, of course, uh, this is going to have everything that the theologian needs, right? Their whole business is to study God and to write and to do research when it comes to who God is. Of course, this would be sufficient for the theologian. But he's saying, no, it's also, it's also sufficient for the plumber, right? All the divine words that the plumber needs. Now, it doesn't mean that you can find uh, all of the necessary components of changing certain kinds of leaks. You're not going to look in the back and the concordance and say, okay, yeah, I, I know how to change this leak on this dishwasher or, or replace a garbage disposal. No, you're not going to find that there. But does it have what the plumber needs in order to please the Lord in his work? Absolutely. To be a plumber who glorifies God and does what God is pleased with? Absolutely. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that with Scripture, or through Scripture, the man of God is equipped for every good work. It's sufficient. And so the counselor must believe that it is enough. We don't need to turn to other sources in order to be equipped to counsel. So we need to be those who know trust and love the word of God or more importantly those who know trust and love the God of the word
And that means that uh, the person who is counseling takes the word of God and draws near to God with it. It's, it's not, there is no such thing for the counselor as bibliolatry, like we worship the Bible. No, we take the Bible, we, we feast on the Bible so that we can know God more and draw near to him and please him with it. It, it is for us to use in worship and helping other people to do the same. Okay. So, a counselor, one who should counsel, is one also who knows the difference between good advice they think grows out of biblical principles and those principles themselves. That's from Jay Adams in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual. Now, this is important, right? Let me read it again. One who knows the difference between good advice they think grows out of biblical principles and those principles themselves. Okay? Here we go. Biblical principle. Here's an example of a biblical principle. All right? You must meditate on the scriptures and pray regularly. Okay? That's a biblical principle. Okay? We, we don't disagree with that. That's good. But there's a difference between the actual biblical principle and the wisdom or good advice that comes out of or flows from that biblical principle. This would be good advice. It would be wise for you to plan when you will read the Bible and pray. Try reading the Bible for a half hour and praying for 20 minutes each morning before you leave for class. That's good advice. That's not the biblical principle itself, right? That's important for us to to remember. Why is it important for the counselor to remember this? Because you can bind the conscience of your counselees. If you give good advice and you present it in a way that they think... Okay, this is what the Bible says? Instead of just the good advice of my counselor, then you could bind their conscience so that they think they have to do things that way, or else they're sinning, or else they're not pleasing God. Because you and I would agree that there are other ways for us to meditate on Scripture and pray regularly. We don't have to do it in the exact specific way of this good advice. And so we have to be careful to not be like Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees took the law and they added to it. And they heaped those things on the shoulders of the people that they taught. We must not be as the Pharisees and the counsel that we give. Who else should counsel? One who exhibits gentleness and patience. Look back with me at our Galatians text. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. God often uses gentleness and patience to influence and persuade. He often uses gentleness and patience to influence and persuade. I like what John Piper says about what gentleness actually is, because we shouldn't think that gentleness somehow is weakness, right? I don't want you to think about that. Like, it's passivity. It's, it's not saying what needs to be said. That's, that's not what gentleness is, biblically speaking. But I like this. Uh, John Piper talks about spiritual leaders needing to be gentle, and he says this. Gentleness is the opposite of being pugnacious or belligerent. He should not be harsh or mean-spirited, speaking of the spiritual leader. He should be inclined to tenderness and resort to toughness 
only when the circumstances commend this form of love. His words should not be acid or divisive, but helpful and encouraging. See, I like that because he's saying, listen, yes, there are times when you've got to be tough. There are times when you've got to be firm. But it's only when the circumstances have risen to a certain level that you need to do that. Otherwise, you need to be helpful, encouraging. You need to not not be someone who's mean-spirited, brother. Tender. Tender. So thinking like that, this, the biblical counselor needs to exhibit that quality. Think of Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or what about Proverbs 25, verse 15? With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. What does that mean? A soft tongue will break a bone. What's he getting at there? Um, Well, a soft tongue will break a bone means breaking down a person's deepest, most hardened resistance to an idea, says Bruce Waltke. Okay? A soft tongue will break a bone means breaking down a person's deepest, most hardened resistance to an idea. But it's with soft words. It's with gentleness. And by the way, James chapter 3, verse 17, says that the wisdom that's from above is gentle. The wisdom that comes from above, not earthly, worldly wisdom, but the above wisdom is gentle. Proverbs sixteen twenty one says the wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Are we gentle? Again, just thinking back, our job is not to bludgeon people with the truth, right? Yes, confrontation is necessary. Especially if someone is resistant, if they don't see their sin, if they're the kind of person that that is is stiff-necked, if they have this rebellious spirit, they, they don't yet see what's going on in their heart. They don't yet see how their sin is crossing the line. It's um, them acting like a spiritual adulteress, like James says. They don't see that yet. You have to confront. But would you have to confront somebody who's already broken over sin? Or would you rather apply gentleness, Right? Of course, because there's, some people come in and they're already in the pits about their sin. They know how badly they have messed up. They've transgressed God's law. They've offended His character. They get it. We need to apply a spirit of gentleness and not bludgeoning them with the truth. Who else should counsel. One who knows that he or she is capable of being caught in sin just like his or her counselee and therefore guards against personal temptation throughout the counseling process. There's a lot packed into this Galatians 6 1 verse. Look with me here again. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You know that you're capable of sinning the same way. Don't be so presumptuous as to think that you couldn't fall into the same sin. 
You need to keep watch on yourself. Yes, even the person who is spiritual, the one who is spiritually mature so they can help the person who's caught up in any sin. But you have the potential. You still have the flesh within you. Therefore, you could give in to this temptation as well. Don't think that you're above it. So, what does he say? Keep watch on yourself. Now, I want you to look with me at a parallel text that will help us with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look with me there. Now, you likely have heard verse 12. Maybe pulled out of context perhaps and used. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But notice there was a therefore, right? There's a therefore, so it points us back to the previous context. Okay, so look with me back in verse 6. This is talking about Israel and the spiritual failings of Israel in the Old Testament, right? In the wilderness, when they were coming out of Egypt and and the hardness of heart they exhibited toward God. Look with me in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, how many times have you read through these books of the law, Exodus, Numbers, and you're thinking, oh, guys, what's happening here? I mean, you just got saved from slavery, out of captivity. Do you see what God did? Do you see all the plagues that you walked through on dry land across the Red Sea? He's providing for you manna all the time, yet you're still stiff-necked and complaining? And we tend to think things like that. What, what gives, guys? And yet, we have Paul here writing. And he's saying, those things were written down for you so that you would not desire evil like they did, so that you wouldn't grumble like they did. In other words, you have the potential to do that. And so he says in verse 12, right? Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let us not be presumptuous. We can be sinning in the same ways as our counselees if we're not careful. So, who else should counsel? One who is a counselee as well as a counselor. One who is a counselee as well as a counselor. Okay, so you need to be counseled by the Word of God, right? Listen to this from Psalm 119, verse 24, right? This says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. So, so you need to, I need to be counseled by the word of God. Let me tell you a little story. I, I went through the same course that you're going through in 2007 with my wife. And we also did track two in 2008. And let me tell you, we got through there and 
There was a lot of times I wasn't thinking about other people and what I could tell them because I was thinking about myself and what I needed to be rebuked for, right? Maybe you're that way too. You're, you're hearing these things. You're like, well, I need to be counseled. I, I need to be uh, shepherded through this. I'm struggling with this. And you're like, I came to get equipped so I could help other people, but I'm the first counselee. I'm the first one. And that's the way we were too. My wife and I were, were asking forgiveness and repenting of sin to one another. And that's good. There's something very healthy about that. That you're looking to the Word of God and it's counseling you. It's leading you to repentance. It's leading you to bear fruit. So you need to be counseled by God's Word, but you also need to seek an abundance of counselors. Are there other people speaking into your life? Helping you see things? Are you getting advice from other people? Proverbs 24, verse 6 says, For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Don't hide your need. In other words, you have need for advice. You have need for counsel. You have need for help. Don't hide that. Don't act like you're strong when you're weak. We're all weak. Paul Paul was weak. He had that thorn in the flesh. God gave him that thorn in the flesh, and he boasted in it. You ever look at that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10? He boasts in his weakness. He says, I am glad about my weakness. Why? Because when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because the strength of God comes to rest upon me in my weakness. And so, don't hide your need. You need other people to speak into your life. You need to gladly receive reproof. Be someone who gladly receives reproof. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. He wants to be told. If there's sin in his life, he's saying, Come and tell me. If I'm making foolish choices, come and tell me. I need to be redirected. I don't want to foolishly be walking in this direction that's displeasing to God and hurtful to other people. Come and tell me, please. Uh, Thank you. I I love you because you're willing to tell me the hard things. Other people just want to kind of tiptoe around and they don't want to say what needs to be said. But you had enough love for me that you told me what needed to be said. Thank you. We need to ask God that we would have such a heart. My fellow pastor, Ben Forbes, uh, and I were talking about those in ministry or those who are preparing for ministry. And we, we... we were talking about a little phrase. We kinda, he kind of came up with a little phrase that was helpful about teachability. See, when you're thinking about someone going into ministry or you're thinking about someone who needs to be an elder or a deacon, teachability is more important than teaching ability. Teachability is more important than teaching ability. I, I love that. I'm going to use that for years to come. I think that's exactly right. Because, listen, there are a lot of guys who get into churches or they, they have this preaching gig or maybe they're an itinerant kind of preacher guy and they're very skilled at communication. They are slick. They've got a, a kind of a, um, a charisma about them that people like to listen to. And yet they do not have humility. They don't have a heart that wants to receive reproof. They, when people correct them, they bristle. Teachability is more important than teaching ability, right? There's a reason why when you get to First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter three and the qualifications of elders, those are all character issues, except for yes, ability to teach. That's one. He should be able to teach. The rest of them are character issues. 
And he must have a desire to be above reproach. And he should not be pugnacious. He needs to have a humble heart, right? We need to be teachable. Those who want to be counseled. We see ourselves as a counselee before we're even a counselor. Also, someone who humbly deals with personal sin before showing counselees their sin. Think of Matthew 7, 1 through 5, right? Take that log out of your eye. Why? So that then you can help your brother with the speck that's in his eye. But before you do that, you've got to take the log out. See your sin as big. See it as, as bigger than you think it is. Ask for, for the Lord to show you how big it actually is so that you will see your need to take it out and repent of it. Then you're going to be actually in a better place for helping others with their sins. Counseling should not be an occasion for hypocrisy. We're counselees before we're counselors. Okay, what else? Who should counsel? One who knows the specific kind of counsel to give each counselee. First um, Thessalonians 5.14 is a great verse for us to, to talk about for just a moment. Okay? First, Corinthians, or First Thessalonians 5.14, Paul writes this, And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, I-D-L-E, right? Other translations say admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak be patient with them all. Okay, so why is that important? Notice that there are different needs for each kind of person within the church, right? There's some people that you're going to have to get after a little bit, right? You're going to have to admonish them, those unruly uh, folks, but there are other people that they are faint-hearted. And they're, they're going to need you to come alongside and encourage them. There's going to be weak people that need your help. right? But all of them need your patience. But there's, there seems to be different approaches for these different kinds of people with these different kinds of struggles in your church. Do you have the wisdom to be able to apply the word to them in their situation differently? We have one message, don't we? This is our message. We have one message, but... Not the same approach for every person. One message, but not one approach. Different people will require you to come at them from different angles. So it shouldn't be like, okay, I've got this one way to counsel. You come and sit down. It doesn't matter who's sitting in front of me. This is the way it's going to be. That's foolish, right? That's not ministering the word. That's just dispensing the word, right? You to minister the word according to what they need. What kind of person are they? Yes, you've got the same content, but you go about it differently for each person. Pray for God to give you the wisdom to do that very thing. And by the way, the person who's counseling knows the right time to say what needs to be said. The right time. Ephesians 4.29 says that we ought to not let corrupt talk proceed out of our mouths, but those words that are only good for building up as fits the occasion. Right? The NAS says, according to the need of the moment. Only those words that are are according to the need of the moment, seeking to give grace to those who hear. Or Proverbs 25 verse 11 says um, that it's a word spoken at the right time. A word spoken at the right time. And so, man, if I come home from work... And this is especially when my kids were, were younger. 
If I come home from work and I really wanted to talk to my wife about something, some serious plans to change uh, the way that we look at, um, you know, disciplining the kids. I think we need to do things differently around here. It's kind of going to be a major shift in the way that we think about this as parents. And I, I come home, I've been thinking about it the whole drive home, and I walk through the door, and my wife is trying to get dinner out of the oven. The kids are amuck. They're screaming, they're yelling. The dogs are in the backyard. They're coming in and out. They're, they're yelping, right? And my wife is trying to get things set on the table, and I come up and say, hey, I, I really need to talk to you about something. Do you have a minute? Can we, it's, it's a pretty big deal, but it's really, it's really burdened my heart. And I gotta talk to you about it now. Well, that's stupid and foolish. I'm I'm actually setting myself up for failure, right? You think she's gonna have buy-in on my idea when I come and talk to her when she's getting dinner out of the oven? Absolutely not. So, we need to make sure that not only are we giving the specific kind of counselee, or specific kind of counsel the counselee needs, but also saying what needs to be said at the right time. That's often a prayer I pray for myself. Is Lord, now help me to know what to say and how to say it. Right? And when to say it. What else? A person who takes sin seriously. You as a counselor need to take sin seriously. Listen to this. Psalm 119 verse 104. He says, I hate every false way. He gets it. He loves God. He loves his word. When people are going against God's word, it burdens his soul. Psalm 119 verse 136 my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Not only is there a certain kind of indignation, right, about sin and those who cross the line, but there's also weeping that takes place. There's sorrow over sin. By the way, James 4 4, he calls. His audience, adulterous people. You adulterous people. Now, he's not actually talking about the specific sin of adultery. He's simply saying you're adulterous in a spiritual sense. You're actually spiritual adulterers. You're friends with the world, right? And that's enmity with God. You are committing spiritual adultery because you owe love to God, but you're giving it to other people and other things. Do we see sin in that light? Do we take it that seriously to use biblical language to address it? I was telling the class uh, earlier tonight in Second Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan's confronting David about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan says, Why have you done this and so despised the word of the Lord. You ever think of it that way? That sin is despising the word of the Lord? And then the very next verse, um, then God's saying, um, you've actually done this and you're despising me. We despise God with our sin. But yet, we want to soft pedal it. We don't want to call it what it is. We want to change the names of it. Right? We, we want to call um, lying, fibbing. We want to call adultery affairs and things like that. Call it what it is. Use biblical language. Psalm 51 verse 4 
This is David writing in in response to his sin with Bathsheba. He's been confronted by Nathan and he's responding in this psalm. And he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Even though he had sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he'd sinned against Bathsheba, he says against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning primarily and first and foremost, I've sinned against you, God. He sees it correctly. And then he goes on to say, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Blood guiltiness. That's what he called his sin. Now, we we could say to ourselves, um, perhaps uh, David is being a little too intense. I mean, he actually didn't commit murder. He just set the guy up on on the front lines of battle. He actually didn't kill the guy himself. Oh, come on. David sees it correctly. Of course he's responsible for murder. And that's why he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. So, the reason why it's so important to call sin, sin, and to use biblical language and to think of sin rightly, is because sin is, sin, it's as bad as it is because of who God God is, right? Sin is as bad as it is because God is as holy as He is. And if we're thinking of it that way, that will help us. God is immensely glorious, immensely holy. Therefore, your sin is really, really, really bad. It's atrocious. It's horrendous because God is so wonderful. But then you're like, okay, you're making me feel really bad about myself. But then that helps you to appreciate the cross more, doesn't it? That's what I love about seeing the holiness of God in that light as so supreme. So we see our sin is in the depths of horrific wretchedness. But then we say, okay, but what did Jesus do at the cross to take care of that sin? That means the cross and the gospel is glorious and wonderful and full of God's goodness. We see his cross and his gospel as even better when we see our sin as worse. So... We need to call sin, sin. We need to take sin seriously. We also need to be someone who is training for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is, uh, I think of this verse in terms of investment, right? Um, now, bodily discipline, he says, bodily training, that's of some value. But think about disciplining yourself or training yourself for godliness. You should give more of your effort, more of your focus, more of your prioritization to training for godliness. Why? Because godliness is of value in every way. It's not just valuable in some ways but in every way because it is something that holds promise for now and later. If you're talking about what to invest in, if you're thinking in terms of investment in in a financial sense, you want to invest in those things that are going to bring you the most yield, right? Get you the most return. And he's saying, then you need to be disciplining yourself and training yourself for godliness because that gives you value today and in eternity. Why wouldn't you? And by the way, it's valuable in every way. And so are you doing that? As a counselor, are you pursuing, are you striving for godliness? Because we can only lead where we've been. We can only lead where we've been. 
So are you engaging the spiritual disciplines, the, the habits of grace, Bible intake, prayer, fellowship, service, worship, stewardship, etc.? One who is feeding his soul. That's what you need to be. Are you feeding your soul so you can feed others? Man, um, there's a great book that uh, I've benefited from as a pastor um, by Paul Tripp called Dangerous Calling. One of the things that he talks about, um, he, he understands how important the call of the pastor is. And so he keeps saying over and over and over again, you need to be drawing near to God in worship. And you need to treasure him. You need to be pouring into your devotional life. Because the pastoral ministry is so very difficult. You've got to continually be uh, walking into situations that are hard, that are draining, that are burdensome. And you've got to remember how worth it Jesus is. And so keep pouring into your heart the Word of God. Keep pleading with God. So what, what can happen is pastors get into uh, ministry and they get so busy that they forget about their devotional life. Or seminarians, they go to seminary and the Bible becomes their textbook and they're writing all these research papers and it gets all very, very heady. And that's why people end up calling seminary cemetery because you die spiritually. We've got to be counselors just saying, you know what, I'm waking up in the morning and you know what, I'm going to be like George Mueller. Because George Mueller, the way he thought about his devotional time is he said, I'm going to start reading the Bible until my heart is happy in God. That was the way he looked at it. I'm going to start reading the Bible and I'm not going to stop until my heart is happy in Jesus. Are we thinking that way or are we just saying, well, yeah, I better save face here and got to you know, read a little bit so that I, I, can, uh, I don't have to look my counselee in the eye and ask him, hey, have you been in the Word this week? But seek communion with God. Read the Psalms and you'll know how to do this. Study the Psalms and you'll know what it means because what you get to see in the Psalms is you get to peek inside the prayer closet of the psalmists. Them relating to God. And it's like you're watching them worship. And it teaches you how to worship. Feast. Fellowship. Commune with Him. Your, devotion, your devotional life is extremely important. Also, one who counsels should not be one who has a fix-it mentality when it comes to counseling. Like, okay, there's a problem. Like, like don't treat your counselee like you're a mechanic. Okay? Like you're just looking at an engine and you're like, okay, what do we got to do here? You know, what tools do we need? I, I think that there's something very lifeless in that, clinical in that. Right? They are a person made in God's image. They have a soul. Right? They, they matter to God. They belong to Him as a child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't just think of them as a project. Something that needs to be repaired. No, they are an image bearer. And so, instead of a fix-it mentality, remember this. The goal for a counselee must be a singular focus on God for the glory of God. A singular focus on God for the glory of God. You've probably heard Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Are you helping your counselee to get to that point? Not just fixing their problem so they're not yelling at their spouse anymore. 
or helping them not look at pornography anymore. Okay, got that taken care of. No, you should be seeing the glory of God as the end goal. Right? Helping them to devote themselves to Him, not just in that one problem area, but all of life. The glory of God is the end goal. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I was um, last year at the ACBC National Conference, and there's this breakout session. The best part of the whole conference for me, um, a guy named Omri Miles was um, teaching on doxological counseling. And he was talking about this, about how important it is for us to see the glory of God as the end result of counseling. Not just fixing somebody's external problems so that they're not um, committing unrighteousness anymore, but they're actually choosing righteousness instead. That's just flat. That's just horizontal. No, it all must be about honoring God, enjoying God, trusting God, relating to God. Okay? That's the end goal. And the reason why he said that is because you can actually be very idolatrous in the counsel that you give to your counselees. Think about it this way. Maybe you're, you're doing some marriage counseling and you're giving biblical principles to your counselees for how to be at peace with one another. So if you would just communicate in these biblical ways... And you would uh, listen first and you would speak with gracious tones and you would choose your words according to the need of the moment, then you're actually going to get peace. And you teach them all these biblical principles and you don't include the glory of God as the end result. What are you doing? You're helping them idolize peace. So that was, that was really convicting to me to think about that. Um, they come in, they want peace, there's conflict in their marriage, you're saying, okay, all you have to do is apply these biblical principles and you'll have peace. Are they not idolizing peace then? Because you didn't make God and His supremacy the end result? That's helpful, isn't it? To think that way, don't think of it like it's, it's just a, a car engine that needs repair. This person needs to be restored to living life the way that they were created to live life and saved to live life, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So this must include a life lived in daily dependence on Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's daily dependence on Him, seeking Him, right? Following Him, the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. And this must also include a life of increasing transformation into the image of Christ. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, right? We're beholding God's glory, right? (laughs) That's important to note. But as we do so, what's happening? We are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we need to depend on Christ so that we can increasingly transform into the image of Christ and conform to Him. Help them rightly relate to God. Let that be your end goal. And finally, we'll close with this. One who keeps bringing the counseling back to the gospel. That's who should counsel. Keeps bringing the counseling back to the gospel. Our only hope in life and death is found in Christ, crucified, risen, and exalted. Have you ever noticed how the Apostle Paul 
doesn't get very far in his letters before he brings up Christ again. We tend to want to think about the, uh, the imperatives, the commands, right? Get, let's get practical, Paul. Come on, just tell me what to do. But so much. You're just reading along, and again, he brings you back to Christ, brings you back to his person, brings you back to his work. Why? Because we need that. We need that for the power and the motivation to actually obey the imperatives. So even in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 32, like he's in the middle of this section where he's given lots of imperatives, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this. But then he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. This is all commands, right? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Doesn't get very far before he brings the gospel back again. You should forgive as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. That becomes your motivation. That becomes your reason for actually forgiving. And then he goes on and in chapter 5 and the next verse, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, there's another imperative. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So be imitators of God like Christ. And remember what Christ did? He gave himself for us. And so he doesn't get very far before he gets back into the gospel. And we should have the same mentality. Don't get very far in your counseling before you come around back to the gospel. What we need so much as the foundation and the motivation and the power of our counsel. Okay, let me pray for us. Gracious God, thank you for loving us and giving us this truth. Help us to apply it. Lord, help us to um, be equipped and then do more equipping so that more and more people are counseling like this. Lord, I pray that you would raise up more and more people to do this good work because there's such great need. And Lord, uh, I pray that we would be like you. Lord, the, the God of all comfort, that we'd walk in your stead, that we would trust in you so that we can give the comfort that you give us and spread it. All for the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.